0: If you would open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, as you're turning there, just got a couple questions for you. What's the purpose of a toothbrush? Dental hygiene, clean the bathroom, (laughs) sub-purpose, then you throw it out, don't brush your teeth after that. Purpose of a light bulb. See in the dark. Purpose of a knife? To cut. Purpose of a cat? Nobody knows. Purpose of a human being? To worship God. Every human being, all 7.5 billion on the planet, we're all worshiping something. And this morning, what we're going to see is this unseen cosmic conflict for the hearts of men and women all around the world over who they're going to worship. Are you going to worship the lamb who was slain, or are you going to worship the beast who was slain? We've been entered into Revelation 12 and 13. Billy preached Revelation 12 last week, and what you need to know about Revelation 12 and 13, it's it's the theological center of the book. And God is pulling back the curtain so that we are able to see the true nature of our present, present spiritual conflict. There is this, group of three, three members that constitute in anti-Trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the second beast. And these three members of the anti-Trinity, they have declared war on the people of God. Did you wake up thinking that this morning? These three creatures of the anti-Trinity oppose God, Oppose us, His people, the bloodbought, and they oppose God's redemptive purposes in Christ that culminate in the worship of the one seated on the throne and the Lamb. Earlier this year, I received a copy of an open doors booklet. It came in with my copy of Christianity Today, and this little booklet is the 2019 world watch list of the 50 most, uh, 50 countries where the church is most persecuted. Number one, North Korea. Number 32 is Nepal. We've got connections to Nepal. And you can't help but ask, why in this time is our Christians suffering all over the globe? Because there's 50, 50 countries listed in this watch list. Our brothers and sisters are suffering all around the world because there is a power at work in the world through human governance causing God's people to suffer. It's what Revelation 13, what we see is the beast. He's the second member of the anti-trinity. We learned about the first member of the anti-trinity last week, the dragon, thrown down. The cross threw him down to earth. And he's furious. He knows his time is short. And so do you know what he's looking to do? He's looking to wage war, 1217, on the offspring of the woman. It's us. The second person of the... The anti-trinity, the second member of the anti-trinity, is the beast. We're going to look at him today. Next week, we're going to look at the third member of the anti-trinity, the false prophet, or the the beast from the land, the second beast. If you look quickly at 13.4, you see those who follow after the beast, they sing praises to the beast. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And at the beginning of this sermon, I just want to remind you, we already have the answer to that. The lamb is not just like the beast. He is the true savior of the world, whom the beast mimics. He's greater than the beast, and the lamb conquers the beast in Revelation 19. when we start looking at these passages and we start looking at these players in the spiritual conflict that are waging war against us, we can, get, we can start getting fearful. But I want to remind you up front, we already know the destiny of the three members of the anti-Trinity. They will not survive. Each one will be cast into the lake of fire. They know their time is short. And so, Revelation 12, 17, the dragon makes his war on the church. Here's the point of this morning's sermon, chapter 13, uh, 1 through 10. Satan, through the beast, is at work using human governance to wage war against God's saints. There's a battle going on. And we must endure it. For those of us who've been rescued from the wrath to come, we must endure the dragon's wrath now. Billy preached on the dragon last week. He's the first member of the anti-trinity. And he's furious... And he is cunning. He is entrenched. He knows his days are numbered. He is determined. And so what we see happening at the end of 1217 is, is, is that the, the beast wages war on the west rest of the offspring of the church. And what chapter 13 is, is the strategy of the dragon. The dragon's waging war And then we have the first strategy, chapter 13, 1 through 10, the beast. War waged through the power of human governance. And then next week, 11 through the end of the chapter of 13, we're going to see the second strategy, the dragon waging war through the subtle false prophet, the subtleties of propaganda. And what we'll see happen next week is that the propaganda it weaves with the power of the state to form a power block against God's own. We're at the very center of the very conflict that rages around us, and John is pulling back the veil for us to see it. So let's now get into the text. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to walk us through chapter 13, 1 through 10. I'm going to bring us to a point. What's it all about? And I'm going to try to apply it, if time allows, five ways. So let's start chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. When the thing about the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature, which this is, it's very visual. I saw, I saw, I saw, behold, behold, behold. We need to see what John is seeing. And what John is seeing is a beast coming out of the sea, which is interesting. Because in Revelation chapter 11 verse 7, in Revelation chapter 17 verse 8, this same beast rises out from the bottomless pit, the abyss, which I told you when I preached through chapter 9 is Satan's hellhole. So what's the deal? Why the sea? Well, if you look over to 13 verse 11, and the second beast, notice where the second beast rises out of. The earth. The land. And if you go back to chapter 12 verse 12, when the the devil, the, the dragon is thrown down to earth, we hear this, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. But if you even go further, back to chapter 10, verse 2, there's this angel, mighty angel, that is sent down from heaven, from God. He's not coming up from the pit. He's coming down from heaven. In verse 2, he had a little scroll open in his hand. And notice, he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Here's what's going on. The mighty angel of chapter 10... Verse 2, God saying, this is mine. I've come back to redeem it. And what we see going on in chapter 13, verse 1 and 11, with these beasts rising up from the sea and the land, is the counterclaim of the dragon saying, no, it's mine. And all the worshipers in it. In chapter 13, verse 1, we see that the beast mirrors the dragon. We read this, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten ten diadems on its horns. And if you flip back to, I think it's 12 verse 3, we read this about the dragon. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Ten horns, diadems, seven heads. What you need to understand is that this beast is devilish. It has dragon-like nature. It's the dragon's representative sent from the dragon as its image of sorts to work woe on the earth. And if you keep on reading, verse 2 Now you get into some really interesting action. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. And and to it, the dragon gave its power and its throne and its great authority. What this is, is a throwback to Daniel chapter 7. If you were reading this in the first century and you were familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel like, yeah, man, this is like vintage beast business here. Because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision in which he sees four separate beasts coming up from the sea one after another. The first beast is a lion, 7 verse 4. The second beast is a bear, 7 verse 5. The third beast is a leopard, 7 verse 6. The fourth beast is a beast that's different from them all with ten horns and gnarly teeth, 7-7. And so what we see going on here is John making a connection from this beast in Revelation 13 to the beasts of Daniel chapter 7. And when Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 asks an angel, who are these beasts? The angel says, they're four kings of kingdoms that oppose God and the saints of God. And these Daniel beasts have classically been understood as the lion representing the Babylonian Empire, the bear representing the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard representing the the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, and then the, the beast with ten horns representing the Roman Empire. And so the symbolism here is one of human empires, governance, The beast is operating in the realm of human governance in opposition to God. It's the nature of the first beast's power and strategy. So what's going on here then is the dragon is waging war on the saints of God through governance that opposes God. So just to be all the more clear, the the beast is satanic power and presence through human governance to oppose God, his people, and God's redemptive purposes. This beast is the Antichrist of 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 4, this beast is the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what we see going on here is that the beast is operating behind the scenes in human governments. And as history climaxes to an end, the beast comes forward as one man. Pretty sobering. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you may be having this question in the back of your mind. Well, what about Romans 13.1? What about needing to submit to human authorities? Well, that's still in play. We as followers of Jesus, followers of the Lamb, submit to human governors and authorities insofar as we are allowed to follow after the Lamb wholeheartedly without obstruction. And if we're put in the position of having to decide between obeying our great Lord and Savior, Jesus, and the state, we obey Jesus. What we're seeing here is that Satan, the dragon of old, is not only able to delegate his authority to a demonic presence that influences human governments, he does. And what happens is, a human government, which is, quote-unquote, Romans 13, God's minister for his purposes, what the beast does is he totally distorts it. And now the citizens worship it. In verse 3, we see the beast's influence in a human government becoming a savior. Do you see the deception of verse 3? Look at this. One, speaking of the beast, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The beast... Is depicted as having this wound unto death, but that death wound is apparently miraculously healed. The picture being painted here is that the Daniel 7 beast here in 13 is a compilation beast. It's all those beasts rolled into one. It's one demonic, Satan-empowered spirit operating throughout the millennia. And it's playing the role of a savior. You can't help the mimicry. You can't help but see it. It receives a death blow, but is healed. Maybe you remember chapter 5, verse 6. Who alone, from all of creation, is able to take the scroll into the ha- of the hand of the one seated on the throne and break its seals who, who alone can do that? who alone can do that is the lamb standing in the middle of the heavenly entourage, a lamb standing who had been slain and then what we see in chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, we see worship following this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Christ's death and resurrection uniquely qualifies him to be the savior of the world. And what we have going on in verse 3 is the dragon's counterfeit savior, the beast, appearing as though it has died and now somehow healed, brought back to life. The beast is the devil's counter savior, operating within human governance, Notice the results in verse 4. The last half of verse 3, the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The second member of the anti-trinity appears to die, comes back, and it seems like the whole earth marvels so much so they followed the beast. That word followed, it's discipleship language. Loyalty, devotion, obedience, doing the will of the beast. That stands in stark contrast to to the next chapter, chapter 14, verse 4. Speaking of the redeemed, the blood-bought, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits to the Lamb, and they will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There's two groups of followers. There's two saviors. And what you're going to see is they follow Him worshiping. One can't help but draw a conclusion that the beast in its every permutation over the millennia makes states into saviors to draw people's heart worship away from God. Now in first century Asia, the seven churches of Asia Minor that we studied back in the fall Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea, to name a few. When they would have received this in the first century, and they hear this beast talk, you know what they would have been thinking of? The Roman Empire. In fact, they would be thinking that the emperor Domitian, who required all of his citizens to worship him at great cost, even death, if they didn't, They would be like, oh, I think we've got a beast in our midst. Now, if you think that this beast business is only limited to first century Asia, how about this? How about 21st century North Korea? How about Kim Jong-un, North Korea's supreme divine leader, its savior? North Korea is number one on the Open Doors 2019 watch list for a reason. It's just not political. There's beast activity going on there. In verse 4, we see the results of the discipleship, the, the following after the beast. The result is worship. That's the real end game here what they say, those following after the beast. Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The members of the anti-trinity are our gathering worshipers from all around the globe to worship the dragon and the beast. And the counter-worship of the anti-trinity is not the same as the true worship of the true trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen to what they say. Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? Dead and raised. Who can fight against him because he can't die? He's our Savior. Verse 4, this this praise of worship to the beast and the dragon is This is a spin off of Exodus 15.11. This is a blasphemous spin. In Exodus 15.11, what we have is God has just delivered Moses and Israel through the Red Sea. They are looking upon the dead bodies of Egyptian shoulders on the shoreline, and they sing a song to Yahweh. And they sing, who is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you? Who can fight like you, Yahweh? And so what these folks are doing, having been deceived by the, the fake crucifixion and resurrection, whatever that is, they're singing blasphemous worship to the beast. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what these deceived men and women are doing? They are attributing to the beast Only what God can do. There is only one deliverer. And there is salvation in no one else. There's only one name given among men. Under heaven by which we must be saved. That name is not the beast. That name is Jesus who is the lamb. They are are attributing to the beast only what God can do. There's only one deliverer. These, these people, these image bearers, have been have been terribly deceived. Now, this question that's being asked who is like the beast and who can fight against them, this should sound familiar because a similar question was asked way back in Revelation 6, verse 17. The sixth seal, God's pouring out his wrath the great day of God's wrath. And all those who haven't bowed a knee to Jesus are saying, who can stand on that day? Thinking that no one can. And then in chapter 7, we learn that, oh, those who've been sealed by the seal of God, they will stand on that day. And then we're given another snapshot of God's redeemed in glory from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping the Lamb on the throne. This question here in 13, who is like the beast and who can fight against him, gets answered in chapter 14, where we see the lamb standing, and with him is these people following him who are worshiping him with one voice, rocking the place. So what we see in 13 and 14 is a false savior who deceived a people who are following him and they're offering him praise. And then in 14, what we see is the true savior, the lamb, with his people following him singing praises. The lamb is not like the beast. The beast mimics the lamb. He's no savior. Only Jesus, by his blood, can deliver people, sinners, from their sin. On his war horse, he meets the the beast and the false prophet for a battle. The armies appear to engage, and you know what happens? It's so anticlimactic. It's like Jesus is on his war horse. He's like, yeah, (laughs) throw him in the lake. It's so anticlimactic, verses 19 and 20. The beast is no threat to the lamb. (laughs) What we're seeing though here is the beast as a means of dragon strategy is influencing human government to oppress God, his people, and his redemptive purposes. There is just no sinful human government that can save any sinful human being. Only the lamb who has been slain can save sinners from their sin. In chapter 13, verse 5, we see this. That the beast was given a haughty and blasphemous mouth. That, that word haughty, it's just arrogant, it's prideful. And blasphemous is just lies about God. The, the beast is an in-your-face, arrogant, blasphemer of God. Who gave him this mouth, by the way? Oh, we're not told right here. But look, look on with me. And it was allowed, the beast was allowed in verse 5, to exercise authority for 42 months. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It's like I allow my beast dog to go frolic in the places of grass when I let it off its leash. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We're not talking about the dragon having allowed the beast to exercise his authority. That's not the dragon talk. You know how I know that? Nowhere in your Bible is Satan given anything close to the authority of setting dates and days and times and seasons. Nowhere. That's God's property. This is God allowing the beast To exercise authority for 42 months. And that we bumped into that 42 months time period, 1260 days, three and a half years, this season of intensifying suffering for the church, waiting until the last days and when Jesus comes back. What this means is this: God has put a limit. On how long the beast may exercise its dragon-given authority, and any authority the dragon has was allowed by God to begin with. Chapter 13, verse 6. Back to the blasphemies. There's a lot of bla- there's a repeated blasphemy showing up. Blasphemies are lies about God. It's attributing characteristics only true of God to Created things, or it's the attributing of characteristics of created things, only things that are created, to God. It works both ways. And so the beast is speaking various blasphemies against our God. More specifically, we read that the beast blasphemes God's name. He's not saying Jesus schmizness. It's an attack on God's character. When the Bible uses name, it's carrying the sense of this person's character. Imagine blasphemies like this. God, he can't save you. Blasphemy. God, oh, he's not going to be faithful to his promises. Blasphemy. God, oh, he can't, he doesn't have the power to do that. Blasphemy. He's not worthy. Blasphemy. He's too demanding. Blasphemy. He's the opiate of the people. Blasphemy. I don't just, the beast doesn't blaspheme God's name. He blasphemes God's dwelling. You See that in verse 6? Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. Now, when you think of dwelling and you think of your dwelling, you're probably thinking about your apartment or house. I think of the brick house on the corner in which me and my family live, my dwelling place. But John doesn't have a place in mind. He has a people in mind. Look what he says in verse 6. Blaspheming his name and God's dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And then when you just look at verse 7 and you notice the beast was allowed to make war on the saints, you start to realize when it comes to God's dwelling, John has people on his mind the blood bought of God, the redeemed, his church. So what we see here is the beast just doesn't spit his blasphemous poison on the name of our God. The beast spits his poisonous, blasphemous poison on God's people, the church. And mind you, if we're understanding the context right, it's all state-sanctioned. You are all a bunch of narrow-minded bigots living in an insulated world, frozen in 1952. Extremists, reactionaries, homophobes, chauvinists, are you part of the alt-right? And what, if, if the, the context is right, if we're understanding this right, it's, it's, it's coming from the state. It's coming from human government. Human government's saying there's no God. Human government's saying if you believe in God, you need to go to a re-education camp. Do you know what's going on in western China right now? In 13.7, the beast is allowed by God to make war on the saints and conquer them. Allowed by God to make war on the saints and conquer them. Why would our wonderful God allow the beast to make war on us and conquer us? Well, there's a number of reasons we could say, but in the book of Revelation, It seems as though God allows these things so that His people are proved in the furnace of affliction to remain faithful to the Lamb in the face of beastly oppositions. It's proving ground. Now, I've got I to explain something right now. You, you may be thinking that getting saved is simply a prayer of repentance and maybe you start giving a little something in the plate when it passes by. True conversion. True conversion. When someone goes from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, when they repent and believe on Jesus, true conversion results in a persevering faith. And a persevering faith is proven by remaining faithful to Christ in the midst of beastly opposition. Even if that is the verse 10, going to jail or even being martyred. Or what we'll see next week, suffering economic sanctions. Do you know what's striking in chapter 16 of the book of Acts? Paul and Silas are in prison And do you know what they're doing? Singing to the Lamb. Proven. What we're seeing is the beast is allowed by God to wage war. The dragon's war on God's blood pot resulting in their apparent demise and captivity, death. But in the kingdom way of thinking, in God's eyes, being imprisoned for Christ or even being killed for Christ isn't being conquered. It's being faithful. It's conquering in the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 12, verse 11. So what we're seeing here is a state-sanctioned persecution of Christians for being Christians, for being followers of the Lamb. That's what's to come. It's already happening. Chapter 13, verse 7, second half. The beast is given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all who he is given authority over will worship him, verse 8. It's the end game. Verse 8, those those who follow him will worship him. But there's one significant clarification in verse 8. And all all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now that's a mouthful. But here's the point. All those who dwell on the earth, that is, everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, they will worship the beast. But everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, they will not worship the beast. They will remain true to the Lamb. The beast is given authority over everyone on earth except those whose names are written in the book of life. These are those who have been truly converted. Who have a persevering faith. Their names are written before the foundation of the world. The the Lamb knows. The second person of the Trinity knows those whom He is slain for. He knows us by name from before the foundation of the world. This is a picture of sovereign grace. Of God before the foundation of the world setting His love on a group of sinners to call to Himself to worship Him. And the point of it is we are not the beast's possession. We are the lamb's possession. We're the blood bought. And do you notice this is the lamb's book of life? Though we may face death, we will live forever with the lamb who himself was slain and was raised from the dead. We don't need to fear death because Jesus is the resurrection and life. And though we die, yet shall we live because of him. And if you're wondering, hey, uh, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? Here's how you know. Do you have a persevering faith? In the midst of opposition, do you stay true to the Lamb? The beast does not have ultimate authority over us brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're in the Lamb's book of life. In verses 9 and 10, we have the concluding application. In verse 9, we read, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. This should sound familiar because this expression was, was used seven times in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Christ the King Church... For those of you who are followers of Lamb, for those of you who know your name is written before the foundation in the Lamb's book of life, hear this. If anyone is to be taken captive, to tap- captivity he goes. If any anyone of us is to be slain by the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Let me try to help you understand this even more. Let me, I've added some words to give fuller meaning. These aren't God's words. These are my words just to help us understand. If anyone who belongs to the lamb is to be taken captive because of the lamb, to captivity he goes for the lamb. And if anyone who belongs to the lamb is to be slain by the sword because of the lamb, with the sword he must be slain for the lamb who is also slain. In light of the beast who is, in light of the beast who is what he's doing. Because we're followers of the lamb, we oppose him. And we will suffer for that. There might be jail time in our future. There might be death in our future. For Jesus' sake. And dear friends, if you haven't gotten the gist of the book of Revelation yet, as we approach that day, if you're a follower of the Lamb, it's just going to get harder for us. And so the call here is to endure by faith. See that last sentence of verse 10? Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. By faith, we know who the Lamb is. And by faith, we believe what He has done on our behalf. He died in our place. And by faith, knowing that we're written in the Lamb's book of life, we are willing to suffer jail time, even pour out our blood for Him, Because he is worthy of our unwavering devotion. Jesus endured God's wrath for us forever. We endure the dragon's wrath now. And in the eyes of our great triune God, our going to jail, our our being put to death, our suffering, economic hardship for him, in his eyes... That's how we conquer through the blood of Jesus. We have a triune enemy, dragon, beast, false prophet, who is waging war against us. And the beast, the second member of the anti-ternity, he is using the power of the state in various ways and forms to oppress God's people and harm us. It's happening today. We have a brother, Simon Rye, in Nepal, who's facing jail time. It's happening today. We have brothers and sisters all around the world. I have on my phone an Open Doors app. It gives me a person to pray for people to pray for every day from around the world, suffering Christians, persecuted Christians. I've been praying for a 65-year-old woman from Iran all week who is suffering state-sponsored persecution. It's happening now. The beast is at work. The satanic's presence manifesting itself in human governments causing God's people to suffer and we must, we must endure it. Okay, I'm going to whip through these five applications. First is this. Beware. The the veil is being pulled back. Beware of what truly is happening. We're given a, a view of the true conflict raging in our world right now. Second, be steadfast. Endure by faith. We have suffering brothers and sisters all around the world. We must overcome No matter what comes. Third, God is in control. He alone sets the times. He alone is the one who gives authority. He is the one who wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. He is the sovereign one. He is in control. And the anti trinity might make a claim, but our great triune God wins in the end. So we trust in his sovereignty. We trust this is, He's working it out, though our suffering is a part of it. Fourth, the irony. Followers of the Lamb have been delivered from God's future and eternal wrath, but suffer the present temporary wrath of the dragon now. And The irony is, the followers of the beast have been delivered from the dragon's present and temporary wrath now, but they will suffer God's future and eternal wrath to come. We've got work to do. Where you come down on the lamb determines your present and your future. All of it. We follow the lamb who was slain. Fifth, the end game is worship. The beast is deceiving the world to gain followers in order to worship the dragon and himself. The lamb is died and was slain to gather followers to worship the one on the throne and him. It's about worship. And what we're going to see in two weeks is that we stand our ground with the Lamb with praise on our lips. We are in a cosmic battle over the hearts of men and women for who they will worship. a Toothbrush, dental hygiene. Cats, who knows? Human beings, our purpose is to worship God. You're either going to worship the lamb or the beast. It's a claim to your Savior. God in heaven, help us Help us to see, help us to be discerning, help us to not be overly fearful, help us to not be afraid, but help us to stand our ground in the name of Jesus, for the glory of your great name, and for the good of all people. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.